You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. Hey, Live Different Podcast listeners, are you between the ages of 21 and 35, want to go and explore the world, but maybe you need to make some new friends because your old friends are a little bit boring these days? Come and check out under30experiences.com. We have some really amazing local experiences. We're not talking about uh, luxury resort vacations where you just sit and drink margaritas until you pass out and get sun burn and eat all you can eat meals and do it all over again the next day. This is not that type of vacation. These are adventure trips to places like Bali, Indonesia, the rainforest of Costa Rica, Iceland, the countryside of Ireland, all over the world. And we bring together a bunch of awesome people, not only to have a great time on the trip, of course, but to also bring back a little bit of what they learned to the community, uh, to their local cities. And we get together in about 25 different cities all over the United States and Canada. So if this sounds interesting to you, head on over to under30experiences.com and check it out. We'd love to have you on a trip sometime. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Live Different Podcast. I am Matt Wilson, and today we are joined by Jeff Greenwald. Jeff is uh, a guy whose claim to fame, as other people claim it, and he will also tell you himself that he was the world's first travel blogger. He is the founder of ethicaltraveler.org. And uh, he has a couple really cool pieces in the San Francisco Chronicle coming out on Nepal. And uh, just an all-around really interesting guy, a guy who has been traveling for a whole lot longer than I have. Uh, a lot of things that we can take from this on how uh, what we talk about at Under 30 Experiences is how we can go to a place and uh, really make our visit have a lasting impact. Um, and if you don't know what we're talking about, we will definitely get into that. Uh, but Jeff, I just wanted to say welcome. Thanks, thanks Matt, it's great to be here. Yeah, for, for sure. What, Jeff, where are, you, where are you sitting right now? Are you out in California? I am, I am sitting at my desk in lovely Oakland, California, watching the wind through the leaves. All right, I've, I've got to ask you right off the bat, why Oakland? Oakland is the most diverse, international, and coolest city I've ever been to. Now, I've lived here for about 35 years, so admittedly, I'm like, you know, I'm a bit, you know, prejudiced towards Oakland, but I've just never been to any other city where it's just so diverse and integrated. You could just go to almost any restaurant, any cafe, and you see people of all ethnic persuasions uh, from all over the world, eating together, talking together, sharing stories. And I, I just love it. I always feel great when I'm, when I'm out and about here in Oakland. That's pretty cool. I, I haven't been to Oakland myself. Uh, of course, I've been to San Francisco, but I've never been across the bridge. Um, I'm curious to ask why people are so so scared to go to Oakland or uh, why I know so many people from San Francisco. And when I say so many, I mean at least a handful of who I've had a conversation with about <laughs> Oakland who have said, oh, no, I'm not going there. Can you shed some light on, uh, on that for us? Yeah. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, Matt, that's changing uh, because, you know, rents in Oakland are, are still substantially lower than they are in 
in San Francisco. But there's been this long sort of, of sense that Oakland has a higher crime rate than San Francisco, which it probably does, that there's not as much there there, you know, in terms of central neighborhoods and so forth, as in San Francisco, which may be true. But once you know your way around Oakland, I, I find it to be a much more livable city than San Francisco with, um, with a lot less of the pretense, a lot more of, of sort of the, the, the feeling of authentic community. And um, without as many horrible parking hassles. Okay. So <laughs> hey, if you could get parking, that's uh, that's that's always good. You you mentioned that um, it feels a little bit uh, integrated with people from different walks of life conversing, which in the United States often you still see a lot of uh, a lot of segregation. It is you find it different in that aspect from other cities. I do. I, you know, okay, I haven't lived in a lot of other American cities, San Francisco, New York. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much bi-coastal. But for, for events like the Temescal Street Fair or the First Fridays or just going to any restaurant, there's a real sense of community here. And I won't say colorblindness because race is still such a very present, you know, issue in this, in this country and, and even in, in this part of the world. But I will say that there's just more of an openness to, to just interracial mingling and friendships and just an easiness about it that I, I haven't really noticed in other places uh, as much. Race is always a slippery thing to get into, and I know that it, it sets us up for all kinds of criticism, you know, and naivete, and that's true. I'll, I'll own to that. But I'll also own to the fact that I just feel good in Oakland. I feel good with people from all over the world. I feel I can talk to anybody. I'm not, a, I'm not in the least bit intimidated to come to anyone on the street, no matter where they're from or what the color of their skin is or what the language they're speaking, you know, and engage them. And that's not true for me everywhere in the world. No, those are, those are good points. And uh, as a set, because you are a traveler and uh, one who speaks about ethics and in a lot of different places, uh, there's always, people always bring up the, uh, the point where, well, you should really get to know your own backyard and you should really understand the cultures that are within your own city. And, you, you know, all those points that, that do come up because, yeah, travel, sure, is about understanding the, the world uh, and that can, that can be done in an everyday thing. So I, I had to ask you your opinion off the bat on Oakland. I found that really interesting. I love Oakland. I am just a total Oaklander. All right. So. I, I like it. <laughs> Come visit me here sometime, and I'll show you why. That, that sounds good to me. We've had a handful of travelers uh, on the trips that we host come from Oakland, uh, a lot of neat young people. And, uh, yeah, they told me a lot about it. I just haven't made my way out there yet. Uh, so, okay, so, Jeff, uh, I need to also ask you about being the world's first travel blogger and really how you came to be, how you – it seems like you've dedicated – your life uh, to to not only travel but to to speaking out on, on some issues that you've probably have just come across uh, in your travels before anybody else was doing it. And as you saw tourism grow, I'm guessing that you said, "Okay, well, we have to do this the right way." Uh, so I'm hoping that you could share a little bit of your story with us. I'd love to, Matt. And those are two completely different subjects that that you just brought up. So. I'll, I'll start with the first one, which is the travel blogger. I was not the world's first travel blogger. There was a guy, and I'm sorry, I don't remember his name offhand, who went across the United States on a bicycle uh, and filed dispatches on CompuServe 
before the World Wide Web was really in operation. He was really the world's first travel blogger, and uh, that was just, just on the CompuServe platform, and you had to sign up for his feed. Wow. Uh, short, shortly after Mosaic was developed, and the World Wide Web launched as we know it, in, in, at the very end of 1993 and early 1994, I set off on a trip to go around the world without taking any airplanes. Uh, I was doing it to commemorate my 40th birthday. I felt like every place in the world I'd visited, I cheated because I'd gotten there on an airplane. So I decided to see how big the real world really was by going around it by land and ship and never leaving the ground. And I got a book contract to do this. The book was called The Size of the World. And before I left, I was uh, approached by some of the IT people at O'Reilly Associates in Sebastopol, California. And they said, hey, you know, we've just developed this new technology, uh, the World Wide Web Mosaic. Why don't you try to write stories which we will post from wherever you send them back from? You can send them back by, via your modem and we'll put them online. And they said, we'll tell you what we'll do. We said, they said, we don't know if we can do this because it's so outrageous, but we'll put a map of the world on the screen and people can like click on the part of the world and they can read your story. And I was like, you can't do that. And they'll say, watch, we'll, we'll make it happen. That's, that's the point things were at back in 93, 94. Wow, that's amazing. And, and, and so starting in January, um, early January, I believe January 6th, 1994, I sent my first internet dispatch back from the Telecommunications Bureau in Oaxaca, Mexico, and it was put up online on the O'Reilly site as the first in a series of big world dispatches. And there were 20 in all, and they were the first, the first international global blogs. Of course, this is five years before the word blog was ever invented, so I don't get a lot of um, you know, mileage out of using the word blog in what I did. But in fact, that's what it was, and that's what we did. And it was, um, wasn't advanced enough at that point to send photos. That would have taken too much time. It took all day just to upload a dispatch from that telecommunications place in Oaxaca, Mexico. But we did put up the text, and the stories are an integrated part of the book that came out, The Size of the World. Wow, that's, uh, that's a pretty cool, cool story. How did anyone know where to go to read the, the stories? I'm, <laughs> I'm curious where it, really, where it really lived. You know, that's a really interesting question, Matt. I don't think anyone's actually ever asked that question before. I don't know how many people were reading those early stories. I know that everyone at O'Reilly and their whole network of people were. They were, you know, a very big IT group and the big publisher of all the, you know, computer platform guides. So all of their people were reading it. They were sending it out to all their clients. And then a lot of periodicals picked up the stories and published them in print. Islands Magazine, the San Francisco uh, Examiner at the time. Uh, you know, there was just a, a number of print magazines that latched on and ran some of the stories as well. And of course, then they all came out in a book. So I really wonder how many people read them in early 1994 and through September 94 when I was sending them back because my trip lasted nine months. Wow, so you made it, uh, you made it all the way around the world without taking an, air, an airplane? Yes, it took nine months, went through 27 different countries. And I'll tell you the truth, Matt, I don't know if it's possible to do the same thing today with all the terrorist threats. Because, you know, the only way to get across the oceans, for example, is to go to a container ship company and convince them to let you on their ship. There's nothing in it for them except liability. 
But I was, I was able to convince two major shipping lines, uh, Delmas and Hapag Lloyd, to let me just come upon their ships as a, as a visitor and a traveler and to cross both oceans with them. I, I don't know if it would be easy or even possible to really do that today. Yeah, I'm, I was I was thinking uh, of how you you might do that, and I was thinking about the the polar uh, what is it the Bering Strait maybe up there between uh, Russia and, yeah. and Alaska. I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if you just walked across that or took a dog sled like the uh, how our forefathers came across it. I'm not talking about uh, George Washington. <laughs> That's it, that was a thought at the time, but in the early 1990s. Uh, the former Soviet Union was a kind of a dangerous place to travel. There was a lot of banditry. There was a lot of chaos and anarchy. And uh, though I had at one point thought of orienting my trip through the former Soviet Union, travelers who were coming down from there, uh, some of whom had been robbed of everything that they owned, uh, told me it was, probably wasn't a great idea to cross through the Caucasus. Well, that, uh, yeah, it didn't sound like the, the day and age for that. That's... That's for sure. And so you went, you you went on this trip, and then, uh, and then you started picking up uh, different things that you wanted to talk about as you saw tourism grow. I'm curious how you kind of made that transition. Well, the truth is that all of my work had been concerned, in some level or another, with with issues like um, human rights and social welfare. Uh, my second book, Shopping for Buddhas came out in 1990, right, three, four years before my round-the-world trip. And that was a book set in Kathmandu, Nepal, ostensibly about trying to buy the perfect statue of Buddha. But in reality, it talked a lot about the human rights situation in Nepal under the monarchy, about corruption in the royal palace, smuggling, about, uh, about the attempt to assassinate a journalist who was doing investigative reporting there. So from, from pretty early in my career, I was concerned with with, with the welfare of, of people and human rights in other countries. And that led naturally to Ethical Traveler, but it wasn't through that around the world trip. It was actually through something that happened in 1995. Um, should I just tell you yeah, what it was? Yeah, I would love to. And I, I, I think I'm getting my dates right here. I think it was 95 or 96. At that time, Burma was under strict military rule. You might remember those days. Sure. Uh, when the junta had taken over and Aung San Suu Kyi was confined under house arrest. When she was under house arrest, Aung San Suu Kyi did something quite remarkable. In 95 or 96, again, I don't remember exactly which year it was, she came out with a statement asking tourists not to visit Burma while it was under the military rule. She said, all the money you spend in our country is going into the pockets of dictators, and they're using the money to buy bullets and bombs to kill our people. So please don't go to Burma. And, you know, I read this, this press release she'd put out. It didn't get much, uh, didn't get much uh, bandwidth at the time. So I wrote an op-ed about it for the Washington Post, call, and I called it Voting With Our Wings. And it pretty much set out the premise that travelers have the power to really influence how governments do business by deciding you know, when to travel to countries and when to withhold travel to countries. And I put that out there in the mid-1990s. Almost nothing happened. And then seven years later, I came out with my collection of short pieces called Scratching the Surface. And I was at a book reading for that at Black Oak Books in Berkeley. And I, I just said to the audience, you know, I was talking about ethical travel. And I said, you know, I wrote this op-ed seven years ago. 
about voting with their wings. I don't know if anybody ever read it. And one guy in the audience, his name was Greg Butensky, raised his hand and he said, I read that piece when it came out and I canceled my trip to Burma as a result. Wow. And I was floored. So after that reading in that bookstore, a bunch of us got together and we started talking about that and we said, let's start a nonprofit, which is a global alliance of travelers who are owning their power. Travelers who understand that travel is one of the most powerful economic forces in the world and the way travelers spend their money counts. And that was pretty much the birth of Ethical Traveler. Wow, that's that's great. And for, for anyone who hasn't heard, who, anyone who hasn't heard the theory or doesn't know how, uh, when you go to a place and you spend your money, how it affects the local area. Could you elaborate a little bit more for someone who hasn't heard of that? Sure. So one of the most important things to be aware of when you're traveling is where your money is going. You want to keep it local. You want to keep it in the hands of people who are doing sustainable, intelligent things with the money. People who are employing other local people and paying them fairly. People who are careful about where the recycling and sewage is going. People who are careful about, you know, every aspect of their footprint in the land that they're, you know, occupying. Travelers often treat places as commodities. You talk about people wanting to do Thailand, you know, or do Paris, or basically having this kind of situation where they're, they're a spectator in another country. But we're really never spectators. We're, wherever we go, we're ambassadors and we're participants. Travel within the past three years has become the most powerful economic force in the world. And I, I, Matt, I just really want your listeners, who I know a lot of them are in their 20s or, or, or maybe even younger, to, to, get, to get what that means. Oil, heavy industry, everything, all those industries, they make less money than travel. So as a traveler, you, me, everyone listening to this podcast has enormous economic power if you know how to use it. And one of the most powerful ways we can use it is to reward countries who are doing the right thing. You know, yeah, we can spend our money in places that, you know, basically tacitly support child trafficking or have a lot of corruption or have political prisoners. We can spend our money in those places and have a really good time as long as we turn a blind eye to what's going on. But there's quite a few countries in this world where the money you spend there as a tourist, as a traveler, as a tourist, as a participant in their culture, goes to help build fisheries. It goes to provide social programs for people. You know, it helps create education for kids, vaccination programs. I mean, those are the places we should be spending our money. We should be telling those countries, like Cabo Verde, Micronesia, Mongolia, Panama, Samoa, we should be telling those places, we support you. You know, you, your values are our values, and we want to see you thrive. And that's part of what Ethical Traveler is about, steering people towards making those decisions. That's really interesting, Jeff. And uh, you said something there about... Uh, well, how you frame it is these countries, right? And so is that a top-down thing, or is that where people, the people who are receiving the money, are educated to do the right thing, regardless of what the government is going to do with the tax dollars that they receive? I'm curious as to, uh, as to where you place importance there. That's, uh, again, a very interesting question, and it's both. Uh, these are countries where people not only are, are, are using the money you know, wisely, I mean, no matter where you go, 
you have the choice of staying in foreign-owned properties or locally-owned properties. Even in our most ethical destinations, places like Tuvalu or Uruguay, there are foreign-owned hotels. We always urge people to keep their money local. But it also is very much a question of what's the government in those countries doing with that tax money? What are they doing with their revenue? Are they using it to, you know, are they padding their own pockets? Are they building up a military? Are they dredging the reefs to build, you know, a, a, a cruise ship ports? Or are they using it for wise, sustainable programs that support social welfare? What do they think of, you know, the LGBT community? Are they supportive of that? How's their animal rights you know, record? If you go to ethicaltraveler.org and look at the report for this year's Ethical Destinations 2016, you'll see a complete description of the 10 winning countries and why we pick them. And it's really about what they're doing on many levels. When we make this list, we look at more than 35 different metrics. How's their freedom of the press? How's their medical care? How's their childhood education? What's their infant mortality rate? You know, what's their policy on, 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 on gays and lesbians? I mean, sorry, on, you know, on, on, gay, on gays and transgender people. Uh, those are all things we consider. How's their environmental protection? What percentage of the country's national park? Those are all things we consider. And a lot of that is money that comes from those governments, from taxes paid by travelers. Okay, great. No, I'll, I'll definitely put a link up there uh, in our show notes as well as to link to some of your books and, and stuff like that. Uh, one thing that I found on Ethical Traveler, which I found really helpful, was the 13 tips for the accidental ambassador. And I really like how on the, the podcast right here, uh, you talked about how we are ambassadors uh, for... I mean, we're global ambassadors, right? And we're not just there to look at a different culture as it's uh, as if it, it were in a zoo or or something like that. You know, we want to have inter interactive experiences uh, with the places that we go, rather than just snapping pictures blindly or, or turning a blind eye to to uh, the issues that are going on there. It's you know, it's the difference between really being a, a true seasoned traveler and just being a, a tourist. Um, so I'm curious if you were planning a trip and you were just someone off of the street, how would you go about planning a, uh, a, a planning a trip internationally so that you would, you would know that it would be a, uh, a trip where the money would go to the right places? Well, the first thing I would do planning such a trip would be to try to keep my carbon footprint in terms of air travel to a minimum. I would try to make as few flights as possible and to take mass transportation like trains or buses within, say, a continent like Europe whenever possible. That's a big, big step on a personal level because our carbon footprint when we fly is still pretty huge. Even though international air travel only accounts for about, I, I think it's like 4% of the global carbon footprint, a lot of our personal carbon footprint as travelers is accounted for by flying. So just be aware of that. Then I would go, I would go to Ethical Traveler and I would see what countries to visit. I would look at our 10 best ethical, ethical destinations and try to include at least one of those countries on my itinerary. You know, let's say you were going to go to Uruguay. Okay, maybe you'll want to do a trip that will include places like Peru or Costa Rica as well when you're down in that part of the world, you know, but you could also visit Panama. I mean, there's a lot of great places to, where you could um, travel in the South Central America region 
that are, that are ethical. Then I'd get more surgical. I'd look for each individual country, and I would just basically put in the words, sustainable travel Costa Rica, sustainable travel Panama, and just take a look at what comes up and go visit the website, see what their claims are, um, and kind of make a decision based on, you know, my own due diligence, what looks best to me, what has the best reviews, what, what places have been mentioned in some reputable magazines as, as, as destinations or hotels or trips or tours, you know, that, that, that really practice what they preach. It takes a little bit of research, but I think it pays off, not only in terms of feeling really good about where your money is going, but the kind of, the level of authenticity in your travel. Because I generally find in my own travels that the more sustainable, the more eco-friendly, the more conscious the travel provider is, the closer I am to the real people in that country and to, 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 their, to their real concerns and to what's actually you know, going on underneath the, the tour banners. Now that's, uh, th that's great advice. And uh, yeah, just, just going in, in there on Google and of course taking Google with the, with the uh, grain of salt as it's all based on search engine optimization, right? But if it looks, you know, it, it's, it's a lot about your, your intuition and does this place feel right? Does this place feel like it's actually doing good in the, in the place that I'm going to be visiting? Um, I, I think that's super important as well. Jeff, I wanted to ask you about Panama because I have been to all the countries in North America and Central America and then there is Panama, uh, which I have not been to, and I live about two and a half hour drive from there because I, I live in Costa Rica. Uh, so I'm oh, curious. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I actually haven't been. I always make my border run up to, to Nicaragua, or I've, yeah, I've been all through the uh, Central America. Uh, but yeah, I'm curious more about Panama and uh, what, would you, what would you go and do and see? Well, Panama, you know, 25% of the country is now protected as a national park or wildlife refuge. So there's a lot of really beautiful places to, to see there. Um, you know, there, there's uh, the Colba area, which is an island in the Pacific, the Barro, Colorado Island, which has an incredible tropical research center and, and great diving on the Caribbean side of Panama. Sure. Uh, there, you know, the coral reefs and whale watching are really wonderful, the San Blas Islands. Uh, incredible amount of tropical plants, animals, and birds. I think Panama has a lot to offer that's similar to what you know from Costa Rica. You know, did you know, I don't know if you know that Panama has the largest rainforest in the Western Hemisphere outside of the Amazon. So it's got that, you know, that wonderful sort of, you know, echo attraction as well. Culturally, in terms of cities and histories, there's the whole, you know, the whole historic life around the canal, which is very, very interesting. But I think you could do worse than to go there just on an environmental trip for marine, you know, forest, bird diversity. It's just a really beautiful place to visit. And in terms of the positive reasons why, why they're on the list this year, like why Panama, um, they're basically spreading their educational program all through indigenous areas. And this is being led by female, female enrollment uh, the current president, which is uh, Avrela, is he still president? I, I think he is. I don't believe he resigned because uh, of this recent sure. scandal. No, I don't think so. I would have heard of that. Uh, ironically, he, you know, he's, he ran an anti-corruption program. Uh, and that they've got a new, um, 
The president created a new environmental ministry in March last year, so they're giving more attention than ever to environmental issues. And these are the kinds of things we look for when we select a, um, a country. You know, how are they moving forward on some of their promises? So Panama got really high marks this year. Wow, okay. No, that, that sounds interesting, of course, uh, with the Panama Papers and everything. Of course, when you hear uh, how ethical the, the place is, it, uh, it always raises eyebrows. Um, so I was curious to, to ask you, and uh, I recently saw a Vice, uh, Vice News documentary as well about an indigenous area uh, that they were that they were damming part of their their water supply and uh, mm -hmm. you know it's it's just one guy with a camera basically going out there and interviewing the people but um, yeah I have uh, I, I would love to go and, and check out that area um, just on, it's really just on the other side of the uh, border more towards Bocas del Toro and all that but in the uh, there's a national park there the name is escaping me but that both Costa Rica and Panama share. It's like the only international park uh, in the world as, as they claim it uh, to be. But yeah, there's a little indigenous uh, tribe up there that's, you know, they're damming up their wa water. And, you know, this stuff happens all over the world. But, um, you know, when, whenever we choose a country and put it on our list, we get, we start getting mail from people in that country or doing documentaries or, or investigation like in this Vice special saying this is not an ethical country, look what's going on. And it's true. Well, first of all, obviously we don't know about every single thing going on in any country. But the other thing is that, um, you know, no country is perfect. I mean, every country has the places where it's doing things that are not exactly ethical. There's not a country in the world where that isn't true. Of course. So we try to look for a, a net positive, you know, and, and, and go with that. Although it's true that you can point a finger at Panama, as you can probably for any of these countries on the list. And in our bullet points about these countries, we actually send the country the report saying, here's what you did right and here's what you did wrong. And if you want to stay on the list next year, you got to take care of some of these negatives. Oh, that's great. No, that that's excellent. And uh, yeah, a lot of this, a lot of what we hear versus a lot of what the research that that it sounds like you've done, a lot of it's about PR and marketing. You know, Costa Rica gets a really good, uh, really good reputation for a lot of this type of stuff. But I could tell you a laundry list of of things that uh, that aren't going well here. Um, so yeah, you're you're absolutely right about that, um, Jeff. I wanted to ask you a totally random question uh, as well, and you may not have an opinion on it. Um, but you, of course, talking about Panama and the Panama Canal, they're trying to build this, uh, this uh, canal through Nicaragua, uh, which I've been kind of following the story a little bit as the, the Chinese are going to come in and uh, attempt to build the canal anyway. I'm, uh, I'm curious as to what you think some of the repercussions of that are or what the environmental footprint of the, of the Panama Canal is. I'm, I'm just curious. Maybe you don't have an opinion at all. I don't have a strong opinion, Matt, because I haven't researched this enough to, to want to hold forth on it as any kind of an authority. But as a general rule, when these projects occur, they usually impact indigenous people the most. And I don't know who's advocating for any indigenous tribal people that might be in the way of any of this construction, but I'm sure we're going to hear about it. In terms of the environmental impact, again, I know that there, there, there's a widening of the Panama Canal itself, being considered or underway, oh, that's and right. that 
and that the human environmental impacts have not been fully examined. I'm not as familiar at all with what's going on in, in Nicaragua. And uh, I'll be very curious to read about that you know, as the year progresses. No, for sure. And it's just as you travel, even a place like Costa Rica, okay, you go to Lake Arenal, and Costa Rica has uh, such a great uh, carbon, or such a low carbon footprint, right? There's, there's so many trees here, and there's so relatively so few people, and the renewable energy, uh, most of it comes from this massive lake, which was man-made in the 1970s. So it, it just makes you think when you see something that it, it really does look beautiful in, in my opinion, but I'm curious as to, hey, how did this impact uh, this local area? And sure, now Costa Rica has all this renewable energy, but what, at what cost was that? So these are the things that I think about when, when I travel, and I hope that others do. And so, yeah, that's why I bring up these kind of issues with, uh, with a seasoned traveler like yourself. Yeah, Costa Rica is a very interesting case in point because, uh, you know, they're pretty much the poster child in some ways for the uh, ecotourism movement, but there's a lot of challenges that Costa Rica is facing that don't get a lot of press. The, the main one, which a lot of travelers don't sort of realize, uh, any country can set aside a huge amount of their land as a national park. It's free to do that. What's not free is enforcing those regulations. And that's, um, that's really difficult. And that's something that, um, you know, in Costa Rica, they, they created a lot of national parks, but they're having a tremendous problem actually enforcing the no hunt rules and, and the other rules that, that make these national parks sustainable. It's kind of an interesting situation. No, absolutely, and I've, I've actually seen some of this in the last couple of weeks firsthand uh, where, you know, you'll go to a, a place that backs up to a, a wildlife reserve or a national park, except the farmers are, are cutting, slashing and burning and, uh, or, or, or ranching cattle on this area, and you're like, wait a second, this doesn't quite add up, and uh, trying to educate people on how you can then how you can use the use the world as our as our uh, resource, but not just mine it, not just extract. How we can live live within the uh, you know live within the nature, within the the beauty that actually feeds us. Uh, so it's I don't know if I said that very well, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a difficult thing I think to to express in the first place. So getting people who don't you know who are not educated on these topics to understand it is uh, extremely difficult, especially I when yeah. Go, go ahead, is, Jeff. This is something really, really cool that people can do if they're going to go to some place like Costa Rica. It's really helpful to find out what the English language paper is in that country and to go to that paper, look up the word environment, and read some of the articles. For instance, in Costa Rica, you've got the Tico Times. Sure. And among the good, the good or the great writers for that paper, there's a woman named Lin, Lindsay Fent. I don't know if you know her. No. And um, if you look up, go to the Tico Times and just do a search for environmental articles, you'll find all these very, very, very well-researched and informative and critical articles by Lindsay Fent telling you where the government stands on things like, you know, turtle egg poaching, shark finning, indigenous people's rights, environmental protection. Um, 
I would say that that's great for Costa Rica, but for almost any country. If you're going to Congo, if you're going to Peru, find the English language paper, take a look at it, and do a search for issues that are of interest to you and see what the challenges are in that country. You know, do a little due diligence. And also read the Ethical Traveler Report for this year because we have a whole special section on Costa Rica. Oh, great. That, uh, that's something I'll definitely, I'll definitely check out. Um, so, yeah, Jeff, I, I, I want to thank you for that. Um, Jeff, if you, so you're going, uh, you know, you have your ethical destinations that you talk about, but you also have journeys where you lead people through different parts of the world um, on these type of, I don't know if you call them educational trips, but you certainly learn something whenever you travel. Uh, and I'm curious as to where you're going, what's coming up next for you uh, personally. Well, for the past five years, I've led trips to Cuba and we call them ethical journeys. They're part, they're part of the Ethical Traveler website, and so that's our, our branding name for them is Ethical Journeys. We have a trip going this year in October with a wonderful leader named Tim Tendick, and he'll be, he'll be taking the group this year. I'm not leading trips to Cuba this year, perhaps next year. Cuba's uh, a fascinating place to travel. It's by no means an ethical destination yet, although it is certainly a destination of interest. And uh, they're having some real challenges partly because so many people want to visit Cuba now and their infrastructure is so limited that first of all, it's driving costs up through the ceiling. And second of all, you sort of run the risk unless you're with a very, very high-end group like National Geographic or Stanford or Smithsonian of being bumped from a hotel. That happened to one of my groups uh, in 2015 and I found it just so off-putting that I said, I'm not gonna lead another trip personally to Cuba unless they, they get that settled. I just came back one week ago today from leading a trip in Nepal. This was a trip of writers for the first uh, Himalayan Writers Workshop, and that was qu quite a remarkable trip as well. The focus was on writing and on culture, but while I was there, I, I worked on a project uh, that, that I'm involved with, which is teaching photojournalism to a lot of the kids who have become earthquake refugees so that they can document their experience in the refugee camps. Wow, that's that's amazing. It, were there uh, cameras that were donated or, or something like that? There were. This wonderful uh, photo, uh, I, don't, I guess it's a photo shop, but it's much larger than that, called Looking Glass Photography in the East Bay in, in Berkeley, donated five uh, beautiful Canon S95 cameras, which we put in the hands of these kids. And they went crazy with these cameras. I have over 20,000 images to edit before we select the ones that we're gonna put on exhibition later this year. We're gonna also try to bring out four of the kids uh, to, be, to be part of this traveling exhibition of photographs. And uh, probably in June, we'll start a Kickstarter campaign around that effort. Oh man, well, uh, yeah, you'll definitely have to, to let us know. I'd be happy to uh, promote the campaign. That sounds, that sounds pretty, yeah, that sounds pretty amazing. Uh, Jeff, I wanted to, to ask you about Cuba a little bit and as, as Sure. Uh, I've never been. Uh, my grand, my grandparents. Uh, I've been going to Key West, Florida, for about thirty years, and that's as close as I've ever gotten, ninety miles. Um, so I've always mm -hmm. been very intrigued with Cuban culture, etc. Always enjoyed the food and uh, have wanted to go for a very long time. But I'm curious as to the to the changes uh, that you're seeing and and what you yeah what what 
your opinion is on uh, yeah on what's what's going on in uh, current affairs. Well, that's one of the most interesting developments in in world history and culture. Certainly, within the past five years, is the normalization of of relationships between the U.S. and Cuba. Still in progress, of course, but it's going to have a tremendous impact on both countries. I think. You know, Cuba is an amazing country. During the whole uh, blockade over the past, I don't know, 60 years or so, they've really focused on things that that are readily available to them. And and you know, everyone knows about their their baseball, love of baseball, their dance, their music, their love of sex, their 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 great love of um, you know red beans and rice, uh, their amazing art culture. But what people don't know so much is that Cuba also has an amazing biotech industry. They're, they're brilliant scientists there, of course, socialized medicine, but I think that their biomedical products are going are gonna to hit the U.S. market with, with tremendous impact. Um, in terms of building their infrastructure, that's going to really be a challenge. They have to do it in a way that sustains their economic model and yet brings more money to the working people in their society. A lot of people have been writing about Cuba over the last you know, year. And I feel sheepish, sort of weighing in on some of this because I'm I'm not there right now. But the main problem in Cuba has been a disparity of income between people who are trained by the government to do professional jobs and people who are the new entrepreneurs who are working in travel and tourism, art and music. And the disparity is so profound that it, it threatens to upend the the entire country. Consider that a cardiac surgeon who went to school for eight years in Cuba, trained in Cuba, a cardiac surgeon, right? Someone who here in the United States would be making, you know, half a million to several million dollars a year. In Cuba has an, a monthly salary of about 66 US dollars. Okay, that's the state salary. The same is true if you're a state trained lawyer or architect or engineer. Meanwhile, if you're a musician selling CDs on the street to tourists, you could make $40 to $100 a day. If you're a tour guide leading a group of tours, like the one I led, we would routinely tip between 15 people, you know, of a $600, $700 tip to our tour leader for a 10-day trip. Do that twice a month, that's $1,200 a month compared to $66 for a cardiac surgeon. For a teacher, the same problem. So how do you stop a complete total hemorrhaging of all the professional fields into tourism and entrepreneurship? Cuba's going to have to deal with that somehow, and I don't know how they're going to do it. One way might be to go towards a democratic socialistic model, like they have in Northern Europe, where a tremendous amount of the income is taxed, but there's also very, very wonderful social programs. Because one thing you learn in Cuba, and I hope it's still true today, even though it was a year ago, things are changing so fast there, is that the people there own their revolution. They worked hard for the benefits that they, they have. You know, the, the child care, the maternal leave, the paternal leave, the free medical care, the subsidized education. They don't want to lose that. So they're going to have to find a way to sustain that while completely changing their economy to reward entrepreneurship and, you know, and good skills. Wow, Jeff, that's... Uh... I, I almost don't even know what to say. I almost don't even know what to say after that. I'm glad that you actually shed light on the uh, 
salary of a doctor because I was actually going to ask you because I sat a couple years ago in a restaurant in the Florida Keys and a woman had just moved uh, from Cuba to the United States within a week or two and uh, I was talking to her and she told me that a doctor, you know, can make 15 or $20 a week. And, you know, sometimes the Cuban uh, accent in Spanish is a little hard for me to pick up because it's not like anything that I'm used to. But I said, I almost had to like clean out my ears because I was so, I was so dumbfounded by that. That is- It's, a, hard, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's amazing. But they have a, a bio, you said a biotech, uh, Industry, which is which is amazing to me, because I know you know when Venezuela uh, was collapsing, I guess for for a lack of a better term, um, you know they had a they have a Cuban uh, exchange program with their doctors. That's one of the things yes. that they that they trade. Um, but it's it's shocking to hear to me to hear that they have a, a biotech industry. Mm -hmm. They have a very good biotech industry with a lot of uh, drugs that I think um, will probably make it to the U.S. They're already sold in, sold in Cuba, sorry, in, in Europe. They have not been tested here, but one of their, one of their main drugs is, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it, it's, but it's specifically for lowering cholesterol. And from what the Cubans say, it seems to, to, to combine the two effects of things like the statin drugs in the United States with like Viagra. <laughs> okay. And I assure you that if they have a drug that can do that, they'll do really well on the US market. Yeah, that's, so. uh, that is for sure. Wow, um, you know, <laughs> you learn something new, you learn something new every day, Jeff. That is, uh, that is, pretty, that is pretty cool. Um, Jeff, before we wrap things up, I, uh, I just really wanted to ask you if you had any advice just for the the young traveler and, and you know if they don't have to be travel tips they can be absolutely any life advice that you have that you've learned um, from yeah from from all of your years from all of your experience I'm uh, I'm curious to know what you have for for all of our listeners yeah, you know, a lot of them are summed up in those 13 travel tips that you mentioned earlier, which were available on the Ethical Traveler website. But let me just articulate a couple of them, which are, I think, the most important. Um, the single most important thing that any traveler, especially an American traveler, can do abroad is learn how to listen. Um, people around the world have, have a sense of the United States that hasn't exactly totally evaporated under the Obama administration, that, that America is basically, does everything unilaterally, that we're a big bullying nation who's always used to being first in line, and that we dictate to other countries. So other countries and the people in them often feel marginalized. If you travel anywhere, whether to France or Peru, whether to China or Nepal, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Just listen to people. Ask them what they think. Uh, if they ask you your opinion on something, turn it around and say, well, what do you think about Donald Trump? <laughs> sure. that's, what you, that's the kind of question you're getting most of now when you travel. What is with this Donald Trump guy? You know, and, and um, you know, try to turn some of these questions around. Why, why does America have so many African-Americans in prison? 
You know, these are, these are questions that you often get from people. And I think it's interesting to turn around saying, well, what are some of your, you know, problems with human rights in your country? Uh, what, you know, how do you treat people of color in your country? Uh, what, what, and just kind of let them talk about what they want to hear about as well and get a sense of what, what, what their issues are. Learning to listen is a really important part of traveling and one that I think is, is under-exercised. The other thing that's not in our um, 13 tips that I personally have feelings about is the whole, whole question of volunteerism. I'm not a fan of volunteerism. Uh, I think that there's a real problem with coming in to to, to, to communities, small communities, especially where there's a lot of kids involved, just staying for a day or two and then leaving, usually making a lot of promises that you aren't going to keep. I think if you're going to volunteer and work in another country, make a commitment of at least a couple of weeks. Get to know the people. Get to the point where you yourself have a personal investment in these people. And whatever promises you make, whether it's to send people photos or to keep in touch, keep those promises. That's a big part of, of, of ambassadorship, is just knowing how to keep your promises. And um, just follow through. Just try to have integrity, learn how to listen, and learn how to speak in a way that's not necessarily bombastic or authoritative, but you know, shows that maybe, maybe you, know, you don't exactly know everything. I, I'm not sure I've managed to do that during this past um, 45 minutes, but <laughs> I, I hope that to some extent it's pretty clear that I don't always know exactly what I'm talking about. No, uh, Jeff, this, is, uh, this has been fantastic. Uh, you have a lot of experience that you can draw from, and we, we really appreciate that. And what you just said is amazing life advice, whether you're at home or whether you're abroad. Listen and keep your promises. So uh, with that, Jeff, I want to say thank you. Matt, it's been a, a pleasure and a privilege. Thanks for having me on, on your podcast. Absolutely. Uh, we can find you at ethicaltraveler.org. And is there anything else you'd like them to check out? I'd love people to just check out my books. Shopping for Buddhas just came out in its 25th anniversary edition. And The Size of the World is no longer in print. But you can get it at used bookstores or, of course, online if you, if you want to read it. And it's a good read. It's my favorite of my six books. Nice, Jeff. We'll definitely uh, link those up in our show notes. And uh, yeah, really appreciate your time. Hey, did you like today's episode? If you did, log on to iTunes and leave us a review. It would really help us out. We try to put out good, free content all of the time. Check out the show notes on under30co.com. Send the podcast to a friend who could use some of the advice. And, of course, if you want to travel with us, check out under30experiences.com and 50% off Athletic Greens on the show notes. Thanks for listening.